You may be seated. We're looking at this uh, Christmas lights, and, and this one is the Christmas star, which is a different message that I'm going to give, because we're just going to go through the text. And um, I haven't done this with this particular text in this way before. It's easy to kind of draw some points about the wandering star and a searching um, those who are Gentiles who are coming as a statement of the worship of this king that you find in Matthew. He wants everyone to know that this is not just the rightful king of Israel, but he's the rightful king who is prophesied by all the prophets throughout the world. And so at this place in, in the Christmas story, he has this story of these wise men that have come. And so I'm going to read this to you and just listen from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And in this passage of scripture, you'll see that it says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of the King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chiefs, priests, and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. A lot of times we stop the story there. But the story goes on and says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt I will call call my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as you take this, your word, that you would apply to us and to our hearts the truth of these these written words from your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. 
Let me just share with you, as Matthew begins this story, and we're just going to kind of go through this, and I'm going to walk you through it, and hopefully you kind of get an idea, because there's a lot of concepts, a lot of things in here that you may have heard, but I don't know if they've been put together in a way that just helps us make sense of this story. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. And here's a bunch of time stamps and a bunch of other things that are going on to give us context. After Jesus was born, the wise men did not arrive the night of the birth with the shepherds and everyone else, as sometimes we maybe think about with regard to the story. They arrived, as it says, after, not hours later, but most likely months later. It could have been anywhere from six months, but many will think it was a year or a year and a half into the life and the birth of Jesus. And we know this because they didn't come to a manger, but it says that he came to the house. Verse 11, if you look at verse 11, it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. So it's not only they're not any longer in that stable or in that place, but they actually now have some kind of home that they're living in. And, and they come to a child, not an infant, somewhere again, probably about a year to a year and a half of age. And it says they saw the child with his mother Mary. And it's interesting to note the order here, because this is a significant little thing that you may just run by. But it says they saw the child with his mother Mary, not the typical the mother with her child. In fact, you find this again and again. If you go to verses 13 and 14, it says angels came to Joseph, said, get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. And so he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. If you go down a few more verses to verses 20 and 21, and it says, after Herod dies, the angel comes again while they're in Egypt, and he says, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And you have this sense of of this one who they are looking for, who has arrived, and Jesus is always the center of reference. Take this child and his mother. And what I love about this story is you see the story of Joseph. And and you get this picture of a guy who doesn't think a whole lot more about it. But when he is told to do something, he just obeys. You see this again and again. It begins when he was in Nazareth. An angel comes to him in a dream and Joseph is wrestling what to do. He's unrighteous and he's a man full of integrity and he's trying to decide, should I, how can I in some way quietly divorce her or break this engagement so that it doesn't bring a lot of shame to her. And he falls asleep. As he falls asleep, resolves what he's going to do. He had been wrestling in his mind. An angel appears to him and says, take Mary as your wife. And the scripture tells us when Joseph woke up, he took Mary home as his wife. Kind of like, okay, whatever you say, Lord. An angel appears to him again in a dream in Bethlehem and says, get up, take the child, and go to Egypt. The scripture says, so he got up, took the child during the night, during the night, and left for Egypt. I mean, it was like, we're packing up. And, and then you go on and you'll find that the angel comes to him in Egypt. And in Egypt, once again, the angel says um, to him to, that to, to go back to Israel. And he says, get up, take the child, and go to the land of Israel. So he got up, took the child with his mother, and went to the land of to Israel. As I read that, every time I read that, I'm just struck in my heart with the, just that obedience. 
God speaks and he does it. And when I think about that, I think of Mary. You know, kind of as a husband with my own wife and, and my family and kids, and I go, how safe, how safe she must have felt knowing that Joseph, when he you know, heard from the Lord, did it. And I just go, how safe people must feel with a person, whether they're a leader in some kind of ministry or whether they're a leader in the, in it, where you work or you are managing a team or whether you are overseeing a family and, and as a parents, how safe people must feel in the presence of one who says, okay, God, I'll do it. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. And it doesn't make sense to me. And I realize there will be a cost even in my obedience. But I, I will do it. So Matthew continues. And he says, born in Bethlehem in Judea. And, and, and Matthew wants to make sure that they know exactly where this occurs. Because it wasn't the Bethlehem that was about seven miles north of Nazareth in the land of Galilee. It was the Bethlehem. You see, you know, just like in our day, they had cities that would be named similar. You know, house of bread was what it meant. And so you had a couple of different places where they were producing grain. And so it wasn't the one up in, in the Bethlehem in Nazareth, near Nazareth. It was the one down by Jerusalem in Judea. Kind of like we, we'd say, you know, no, not the Miami of Ohio, the Miami Township of Ohio, and the Miami in Florida, right? And so he wants to make that really clear. So he says, that's the Bethlehem. And he's emphasizing the Davidic background of Jesus when he, when he talks about Bethlehem because Bethlehem was the house of David, his home place. And he comes from the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe that was prophesied to produce the line of kings. And so Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the tribal land of Judah. And that's why he moves next to the Old Testament prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where he talks about it's Bethlehem, this little place, this little town, you will be recognized forever and ever. And so Matthew's entire gospel, as you read through it, is, is to seek to help people understand that this is the rightful king who has come to earth. He is the king to be worshipped by the people who have been prepared for this king, and he is also the king, now he's going to say, that will be worshipped by the Gentiles from around the world, which is the reason for this story. And so he continues to add a bit more context, and he says it was during the time of King Herod. Now, King Herod is an interesting person. He was Herod the Great. He was appointed to rule over Israel by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C. He lived really from about 73 B.C. before the time of Christ to about 4 B.C., which is a good time stamp. You kind of say, when was Jesus born? It wasn't. Jesus wasn't born at, at A.D. when that starts there. Um, we're going to find out a little bit later in this message that, that history hadn't had it right. One of the things was it, it says that Jesus was born in that time and it wasn't until later that they found that Herod died around 4 BC so Jesus was born just prior to that. Herod the Great was the first of a list of King Herod. So as you read the New Testament it can be kind of confusing. What Herod are we talking about here? Because there was a Herod at the time of Christ's birth. There was a Herod who was around the time of John the Baptist and ministry of Christ. And there's a Herod with the early disciples in the book of Acts. And there's a Herod that's later when Paul comes and sets trial before him. There's all these different Herods. But this is the one, King Herod the Great, who had lived in that time of the birth of Christ and died shortly after his birth. He was known for taxing people 
in order to build beautiful buildings. He, he could have been called Herod the Great Architect. He had built amphitheaters, and, and, and it, which are kind of like stadiums. And he, he built then theaters for plays and, and monuments and fortresses. And his greatest work was the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. One of the things he wanted to do to lead the people in Jerusalem as the king over them, because he wasn't always in a good relationship necessarily with them, was that he was going to restore this temple that had been destroyed. And so he began that work, and he started that work in 20 B.C., just about 20 years after he took power. And that temple was not actually finished till 50 A.D. It's not like a lot of things we do. You know, we put on an addition, and, and we're a little bit bummed because it takes nine months to a year or something like that. Used to be when people in the Middle Ages would start a, 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 a cathedral or they would build this church or they'd build this building, they would start it knowing they will never see it finished. Herod never saw it finished. Herod the Great was, in a sense, known not only as the great architect, but he was also known as Herod the Ruthless. He murdered his wife, three sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and a whole lot of other relatives at a Thanksgiving dinner over an argument with politics. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, he, he actually he murdered them throughout his reign at different times when they became a threat. He had no problem murdering or doing whatever he needed to do towards anyone he perceived as a threat to his power and his position even if it was his sons. I, I don't even get that. So the Magi, after seeing this sign back in Persia, rising, as it says, out of the east, head to the capital city of Israel to find out where this king will be born. Because the sign pointed to a king over Israel. So why don't you go where? To the capital city. They go to the capital city. They ask for an audience with King Herod. They don't necessarily know maybe because they're further away. They don't get the headlines. They're not on Twitter feeds and things like that. Exactly who Herod is and what it's like. But they ask for an audience. They get the ability to stand before Herod and they come to him. They don't realize this, but they, they come kind of naively in some ways and say, we're really excited. We've been studying the stars and there is a new king who's going to be born. Now, Herod's just kind of taking it in. What's really interesting is they're not looking for someone who will be made king like Herod. Remember I said Herod was an appointed king. The Roman Senate did in about 40 AD. But he was, he was, a, he was a king. He was a politically savvy guy. He knew a bunch of the Caesars on the way up. And he kept kind of moving around and maneuvering until he finally got to the place where he was appointed to be king over this whole area. They're saying, no, we're not looking for some guy who is going to be appointed. We're, we're looking for the one who is born king. I mean, he's, he's got the rightful title. He's the heir. We're just wondering, king. And you can just, I just can just see what's going on in the king's mind. Because he knows. He's well aware. There's a bit of a fever P 
pitch already for a new Messiah. There's people who aren't happy with Rome. There are people called the Essenes. And the Essenes were a group of people in Israel who left Israel, went out into the mountains and the deserts, and they separated themselves because they felt like the Messiah would only come if they could be separate away from all this evil wickedness of the city. You think of Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. This is this people that lived out there. There's also another group of people called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, we, we think and we give them kind of a bad rap, but the word means pure ones. And they're the pure ones who are saying, you know what? Until we get really pure, God wants us to scrupulously follow his law. And if we follow his law and we, we can bring Israel to a place of purity, then God will send his Messiah. That, that explains some of the reasons why Paul was persecuting the church. He was trying to get this junk out of Israel so the Messiah could truly come. Not knowing the Messiah had already come. And there is a whole other group of people called the um, Zealots. And they were much more of a political activist group. They were the ones who were saying, we can't stand Roman here. Part of what we got to do is if we start the kind of the overthrowing of Rome, that leader will emerge and we will see the Messiah. King Herod has all this background in his mind when they come to him and they say, Herod, there's a king who's been born, the rightful one of Israel. And the scripture said Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem is disturbed as well. And all of Jerusalem, I think, is disturbed because Herod's disturbed because they know Herod. They know Herod. And they know that any threat to power means there's going to be people paying a price. So there's a part of the disturbing of Jerusalem that's fearful of the king who is so insecure who's going to act out. But they're also disturbed, not out of fear, but a sense of awe. Did you hear your words? These, these, these wise professor guys have come from, from the, the east and they, they said there's going to be a king. And you can hear the rippling of the current of people who are beginning to say, I think maybe the Messiah has come. So here it hears the news. And you can almost again see his internal reaction. Hey, a newborn king who's the rightful heir. And I get this picture of, you ever, you know, watch like movie or TV sometimes and you'll see and, and, and all of a sudden you hear threat, threat, threat incoming and just you're afraid. Lights are going off like code blue, code black, code whatever it is. That's what's going on inside of him. But Herod is such a, in control of his emotions at this point. He keeps his composure and he, and he calmly says, and, and if you were here, I think this is probably what he said. A newborn king. Groovy, man. That's really cool. I used the groovy because it's, you know. He, he was out of date. You know, he's back. In the, anyway. How do I, how about each kind of system? If I do some digging around and see what I can find. Maybe, maybe some of the chief priests and some of the Old Testament scholars will have something around this. And I'll go find out where this little guy is supposed to be born, and I'll get back to you, okay? So we're told in Scripture that he calls a meeting, Herod does, with the chief priests in the Old Testament scholars, and he says, hey, there's some really bright guys who've come from the east and, and you know, this area of Persia, and they're, they're stargazing kind of type of guys. They're astronomers slash astrologers, and, 
And they think the king of Israel is born about now. Do you guys have any idea where? And the Jewish religious scholars go, oh, sure, we know exactly. And they pull out the scroll and they show them and they say, here, the prophet Micah, he, he, he tells us about that, that, that the ruler of God, he'll be born. It says, it says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, good, good to know. So you think it's Bethlehem? Yeah, it's Bethlehem. So Herod calls a secret meeting, it says in scripture, with the Magi. That's, you know, brings them in. Guys, got good news for you. Found out where the king's going to be born. You guys are in luck. He'll be born in Bethlehem, just a few miles south of here. You guys go search for him. You know, go ahead and go search for him. Uh, but when you find him, let me know, because I really like to worship him as well. I, I'm, I'm excited to do that, so make sure you tell me, I'll find out. And he says, and by the way, I was wondering, you know, I'm thinking of a gift. Do you know about when the child was born? You know, got to get the right size, it's the right gift for him. Oh yeah, and they tell him when it is, because he's figuring in his mind about how old is this little kid. Because he has a gift not just for him, but because of his insecurity and his self-obsession, he plans to murder a whole bunch of these little ones. He has no desire to see them. Matthew continues the story. After these magi had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Which has to cause you to think, what in the world is this star? It seems to be moving. It seems to be going somewhere. Is it a comet or some kind of meteor? Maybe a planet or some kind of exploding star like a nova? And there's all kinds of different theories. I've studied this over the number of years, had opportunities to preach on this in the past and, and done work on it before, but it's just in the last few years, it was just about three, four years ago when I was studying this that I kind of really started to say, I think this makes sense. I believe this whole idea of constellations coming together is what these guys saw. Because they were signs in the heavens that not normal everyday people saw. There's a, there's a great website that if you want to study this a lot further and goes through it, and it, it's called thebethlehemstar.com. If you want to look it up, it'll give you more of this. But let me just read to you how the website begins with this paragraph. The star of Bethlehem fascinates. For millennia, believers, scoffers, and the curious have wondered at the biblical account of the star. For many doubters, the account of the star is easily dismissed as myth. For many believers, it's a mystery purely accepted on faith. But what happens, they say, if we combine current historical scholarship, which is some of the stuff around the birth of Christ, astronomical fact, and an open mind. Judge for yourself, dot, dot, dot. What this whole theory kind of comes together on, and I'll just make this kind of quick, and I'll quote a few things at times from this site around this theory. It, it begins with the work of the brilliant scientist Johannes Kepler, who his work is the foundation of so much other work that follows. And I could read to you quote after quote about this guy, who in the 1600s, made some remarkable discoveries as to how the solar system works. 
Kepler, though, at that time was limited by his knowledge of the first century history. They didn't have some of the archaeological understanding, some of the dating, some of the things that were known and are known today. They also didn't have the ability to compute mathematical formulas like you can today with computers. One author writes, with software which incorporates Kepler's equations, we can create a computer model of the universe. In minutes, we can produce thousands of sky maps, which were a great labor before computers, which was what Kepler was doing. He was trying to figure out when Christ was born. He was trying to do it longhand, you know, trying to go all the way back. We can animate the universe in real time at any speed we choose, make months pass in moments, or wind back the clock. We can view the sky precisely as it moved over Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Due to computers, it has become possible to develop new potential answers to some of the mysteries that were once held by faith. So let me quickly share a few things. We talk about magi here. Magi is short for magician. It's not magician necessarily, I think, in, in that way. There were some magi who were magicians. Daniel, when he went to Babylon and then went eventually to Persia, was one of the magi. So were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and all these others. They were the ones who were basically um, astronomers slash astrologers scientists. And they could go all the way from being atheists to being people who were astrologers who believed that the forces of nature forced people to be the way they are and all the other stuff to people who were just astronomers who believed in God who saw the, the heavens as signs. And so there's this combination. Around astrology, the New Columbia Encyclopedia says this, Astrology holds that the stars exert forces on man. Astrology is a form of divination based on the theory that the movement of the celestial bodies, the stars, planets, sun, and moon, influence human affairs and determine the course of events. And there were people in that day who were pure astrologers. By contrast, though, the Bible refers to the celestial objects, as you look up the heavens, as... Those that carry signs from God. Not determining the fate and the actions of any individual. So the horoscope stuff is just not true. The Bible prohibits the worship of the sun, the moon, and stars. If you go to the book of Job, Job is one of the earliest manuscripts, even going back to the Pentateuch, it's one of the earliest recordings of scriptures that we have from the life of Job. Which is interesting because I read it in high school because my teacher, who was not a, who was an atheist, but an existentialist, said, you get, we were going to read this as a class because Job was one of the first existential writings. Okay, interesting. Dad, did you know that? You know, anyway, um, Job 32, 31, 26 through 28 says, if I had regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in splendor so that my heart was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged for I would have been unfaithful to the God on high. There were people back then who studied the stars, who saw the stars, but did not give homage or worship them. Yet with this command not to worship the stars in the heavens, the Bible does make a surprising number of references to there being signs in the heavens. Both the Old and New Testament assume that what happens up there matters. In fact, Job credits God with the creation of the stars and the constellations. In Job 9.9, this is how far these constellations go back. It says in Job, he is the maker of the bear, Ursa Major, of Orion and Pleiades and the constellations of the south. 
The Bible makes an important distinction when it speaks of astrology. Astrology assumes that the stars cause earthly events. The Bible assumes that they may bring messages about earthly events. And that's what these magi are reading. Let me, let me give you just a quick illustration. Think of it this way. A thermometer can tell you if it's hot or cold, but it can't make you hot or cold, right? There's a big difference between a sign and an active agent. There's a difference between astrology and what the Bible talks about, which is what I think they were more astronomers. So the job of the Magi in Persia was to study the stars as scientific, in that sense, astronomers. And again, there's astrologers, and, and there are also then those who just don't believe in any of this. They were looking for something unusual, and something unusual had to take place in the heavens that only a trained eye could see, because we're told that there wasn't some astronomical, spectacular sign that would have caught the attention of everyone. And the way we know this is that Matthew tells us that Herod had to ask when the star appeared. And there's a big clue in Scripture that that, that's an important thing. Herod didn't know. It took the Magi to explain it. But once the star was pointed out, once they were able to share that, all Jerusalem went abuzz. And and Herod jumped into murderous action. And so a reasonable hypothesis is that the star must have been something in the normal sky which was striking when explained. So these magi would have been looking into the stars and seeing this unusual coming together of constellations and planetary movement. So here's a few things that I'm going to just read right from the site. The the name of the largest planet of our solar system is Jupiter. Throughout ancient times, even to this day, Jupiter has been known as the king planet. In ancient times, planets like Jupiter were considered wandering stars. This is really important to note, too, because you see about the star, we kind of go, is it a star that's moving? In that day, planets, you know how you can see planets and they do move? They were called wandering stars. They didn't know about planets. They didn't understand it that way. And for centuries, humans had assigned kingly qualities to this giant wandering star called Jupiter. In fact, Jupiter was the greatest god in Roman, in in the Roman theology. Around the time of Christ's birth, our Middle Eastern magi saw Jupiter coming into close conjunction. That means it came close in relationship, almost appearing to touch the star Regulus. And Regulus is the root word for the contemporary word we have, regal, Regulus regal. And Regulus in Babylonian times meant king. The Romans called Regulus by the name Rex. You think of T-Rex, right? King, who's the king of the dinosaurs. And so around the time of Christ's birth in September, at the beginning of the year, is the Jewish year Rosh Hana. So as the new year of the Jews is beginning, these two constellations are coming together. The planet of kings meets the star of kings. And this conjunction may have indicated kingship in a very forceful way to these Babylonian astronomers. And so they're kind of looking at that. And the planets move against a field of fixed stars. And from Earth, they appear to be active, right? For example, were you to watch Jupiter each night for several weeks, you would see that it moves eastward through the starry field. That's what they're seeing. Each night Jupiter rises in the east, which it meant, which is what Matthew states. The star went ahead of them. Each night it appears to be slightly farther east in the field of fixed stars. Remember, they're walking. They're not taking cars. They're not flying. So they're seeing the star. Each night it appears to be slightly farther east in the field of the fixed stars. And all the planets move like this. But the wandering stars exhibit one another stranger moment, a uh, motion. Periodically, they appear to reverse course and move backward through the other stars. And this seems a bit odd. 
But if you think about it, they say it's simple to think of it this way. We watch planets from a moving platform, Earth, hurtling around the sun in its orbit. For example, when you pass a car on the freeway, you're coming along on the freeway, and it appears as you're passing a car, sometimes it doesn't appear like the car's just dropping backwards. That's what happens with these wandering planets. And for similar reasons, when the Earth in its orbit swings past another planet, that planet appears to move backwards against the starry field. And astronomers call this optical effect retrograde motion. And due to this retrograde motion, the Magi saw Jupiter dance. This is what's going on. A halo around Regulus. Not once, but three times. As Jupiter was beginning the coronation of Regulus, another startling symbol rose in the sky. The constellation which rises in the east behind Leo is Virgo, the Virgin. When Jupiter and Regulus were first meeting, she rose clothed in the sun. In fact, if you go to Revelation, John makes a comment on this in John chapter, in Revelation chapter 12, 1 through 5. He says the moon was at her feet. It was a new moon symbolically birthed at the feet of the Virgin. Okay, so you didn't maybe know all this stuff was in the Bible, but here's, here's all the stuff behind it. The sheer concentration of symbolism in the stars at this moment is remarkable. The Jewish New Year, you've got this halo effect, and you have this other Leo and the, the, the Virgin coming together. And these things would have certainly led the Magi to conclude that the Jewish king had been born and got them on their way. And by the following June, Jupiter had finished crowning Regulus, and the planet kings traveled on through the star field toward another spectacular rendezvous with the time, this time with Venus, the mother planet. And this conjunction was so close and so bright that it today is displayed in hundreds of planetaria around the world by scientists who know nothing of the Messiah. So this still happens, and it's incredible how bright. Each contributed to its full brightness to what became the most brilliant star man had ever seen. And Jupiter completed the step of starry dance as it was setting in the west. Which is one of the reasons as they started to leave Jerusalem, they saw in the south the star ahead of them. They were, you always say, well, why were they overjoyed? Because they saw this conjunction come together. And it was in their heart and mind, saw it right over Bethlehem, which they had been told. And, And now let me add one more thing. God, in his grace, was so good that when he took the people of Israel some years around 600, 500 B.C. before Christ, and they were brought to Babylon, he took Daniel and, and all these bright guys. It's, it's what they used to do when they'd conquer a city, an, an area. They would take the brightest and the best leaders. It's kind of a brain drain and remove them from that city so they couldn't ever overthrow them and bring them to That was one of the strategies. And so they brought them with all their Old Testament scripture, the gold from the temple and all that stuff. They bring it. It goes to Babylon. Persia overcomes Babylon. They take Daniel. Daniel's now in Persia. These, as he's one of these astronomer magi, they now have his scriptures. So when all these things are coming together, they're able to read what it says in Numbers chapter 24, 17. They have the Pentateuch. And the Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth. From the descendants of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of the descendants of Israel and shall crush the forehead of Moab and destroy all the sons of Sheph. God was leading them through the skies using the very stars they studied that had thrilled their souls to lead them to God who made these stars and made their very souls. Amazing how God 
will reach anyone who truly seeks him. I've heard it said, and I say it often, God goes where he's wanted. People will say, I can't believe God will send people to hell. And I always just go, that's just not the right thought or question. You don't want God. He's given you free choice. You don't want him now. You won't want him the rest of your life. And Matthew concludes the story. On the coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's why a lot of times they say there were three because they had three gifts. It, has no, it could have been 10 or 15 because they shared gifts. Uh, who knows? And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And I'm just going to share these Three things. I love how that ends. God is overseeing his purpose, his plans, his promises. God will do what he's promised in your life. If you know the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart, he has given you a promise in your word, you may feel today that you sinned and you, you, know, you feel far from God. God says, you know what? Nothing can keep you from me. Nothing. I will go to the cross. I will die on a cross. I'm going to show you visibly, physically, historically that you can always look back and say, my heart is so for you. you all you need to do is humbly just say, God, forgive me, and I just want to walk in your presence. And he says, you know what? You got it. God will do what he promised. And I love this, too. God will use all who seek him. The story of Christmas, he uses wise men and shepherds and a couple teenage kids to accomplish his purposes. God has placed you right where you're at. You could be in a position where you're sleep, you sleep in floors or cleaning offices, or you could be in a position where you're running the whole show. You could be a mom over some kids where you've given up some meaningful work and you've just decided to do that for a time, or you can be a mom who's working hard. Um, as It doesn't matter. You can be a, a, a anybody, anywhere, Right where you're at, God is wanting to use you to work through your life. He wants you to be a guiding star. He wants you, whatever your position is, wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, whether you're guiding a family or you're guiding a a work area or you're guiding a team or you're at school, he wants you to know that you can be used of him and he will use you. And I love this. This is the last thing I'm just out of this passage. God will speak to you in your language. <laughs> God knows how to reach you. I mean, he knew how to reach these guys. I mean, I go, I, mean, I, I don't have the slightest inclination to the science, astronomy kind of stuff. But God knew how to reach them. God knew how to reach a bunch of little shepherds. 
God knew how to reach people who came to him with their illness and their disease through Jesus and others who were tax collectors and proud and standing afar and felt like they could never be good enough so they just gave up. You've never been in that position where you're just tired of measuring up and God comes along and he shows you in his grace and his mercy. He speaks to you in ways that make sense, that only your heart relates to. God loves you that much. God goes where he's wanted. And if you want God... He wants you. Nothing can separate you from his love. That's really the Christmas story. It's the story of the star. I'm going to ask the team to come forward. And we're going to just uh, sing together one last time. But I'm going to ask you to stand as we do. And let me lead you in worship, in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for these lessons from scripture that we can kind of read through, but you have um, put so much into this. There's so much more than we could imagine. And why should we even doubt that? Because you are so much bigger than the boxes we put you in. I know even as I'm praying right now, God, there are some people who have had you in a box and you're saying, hey, look at, and you're speaking to their heart about something. You're, you know their language and you're, you're just calling them to trust you again. You're bigger than that box.